of a, um, a obviously a, a, a phenomenon here. Um, I yesterday for sort of shits and giggles put together a Loomscape of uh, sort of webinar platforms. Um, and it's really amazing to see, first of all, the long tail of uh, so many of these things. There are a tremendous amount, although I think I think I captured the preponderance of usage uh, at the top with the with the larger logos. And look, we've had these for a while, but there's a bunch of tools that are seem to be expanding, right? I mean, we've always used uh, these sort of tools for meetings and for webinars in business. That's that's nothing uh, unusual. But what is unusual is the coronavirus scenario and crisis has led us to expand that use case to panels, firesides, town halls, TV broadcasters. I noticed this morning on CNBC are doing a live broadcast from their home. So we're really expanding the business application uh, of communication tools. And also on the sort of personal side, uh, I have now participated in two uh, Zoom workouts, um, uh, which is a fascinating new sort of application of that technology, and, and, and two uh, Zoom happy hours. And with that in mind, I just want to uh, pimp uh, something that's coming up tomorrow, folks. Every day there's a new uh, uh, streaming opportunity for you. Bill Wise and I are doing Rosé Thursday, uh, at 4 p.m. Eastern, uh, which is, you know, appropriate for you uh, uh, across the pond. Uh, you can drink at normal hours. We, on the West Coast, you can just get started early. Just assume you're getting started early. Uh, we figured, you know, even though there's a crisis, you can have it all, can spelled C-A-N-N-E-S, of course. So we're going to be just talking about a bunch of things and pouring some rosé. So I invite you to that. Uh, I don't have the link here, but uh, we'll, um, we'll be posting it on socials. So just follow us. Uh, at uh, Bill Wise or at T. Uh, Kawaja. Okay, back to the uh, task at hand, identity uh, and consumer privacy. So in a slide that I created seven minutes ago, um, this really sort of is the, the top-down perspective of, let's think about identity as a keystone to data-driven marketing. There is this enormous global $1.7 trillion marketing uh, uh, TAM uh, that we get to par participate in and, and, and take advantage of. The key for data-driven marketing is that that, that TAM, that, that, that um, access to consumers is addressable. And by addressable, I mean there, there's da a data connection. So, so basically making that connection from the market to the addressability of it. Not only does it have to be addressable, it has to be attributable. Right. If we don't, if we don't know cause and effect, then the data driven really doesn't uh, doesn't matter. And it turns out that attribution is centered requires one currency, and that's identity. So at the end of the day, we are really talking about the foundation, the keystone, if you will, to this 1.7 trillion dollar market that's rapidly becoming addressable that we're still working on uh, aspects of the attribution, but again, centered on identity. Another way to think about it is, you know, we used to live in a world where marketing was batch process. What do I mean by that? Uh, I mean, marketers would sit down, plan out their campaigns, um, then, then sort of, you know, execute, uh, take a look 
post factum, right, at how the campaign ran, collect whatever data they could in terms of, of performance, some of which, you know, they didn't have a tremendous amount of granularity. And then they would say, ah, based on these results, we're going to do it differently on the next campaign. Uh, and it was very much sort of batch uh, process. Uh, well, that doesn't, that doesn't work. In, in, in today's marketing cycle, which is 360 degrees, you do your planning, you, you immediately, uh, you know, collect data uh, in terms of, you know, uh, media placement, performance, conversion, you optimize that. Of course, there's, there's the creative uh, uh, ad serving, there's the actual media and, and other uh, channel activation, whether that be, you know, in the big markets like TV and digital, um, in email, on websites, if it's content marketing, you've got that sort of activation layer that's commonly thought of as, you know, digital media or, or ad tech. Uh, then you got to measure it, right? Uh, and only once you can measure it, you have to then apply attribution such that you are able to tell what worked and what didn't. And that attribution then feeds uh, planning, but it doesn't feed it on the next cycle. This all happens in real time. So uh, you get to course correct. Once you've started a campaign, you're watching it, seeing what's working and adjusting uh, on the fly. So those are my sort of high level uh, points about the, the opportunity and the application here of identity. If you think about it, right, the supply chain is very fragmented between the principles and the principles of marketing being the marketer, person spending the money, and the consumer, the target, and the one for which uh, is going to spend money on, on the marketer's you know, goods and services. And in between, in the middle of all that, is this big morass of 5,000 companies represented on now 22 uh, official Lumascapes and a bunch of unofficial ones. Um, so there's a lot of fragmentation, there's a lot of complexity, and there's a lot of dynamics. When you combine those three, you get for a very you know, interesting space. We have noted in prior conversations that there are issues that arise, in particular in the digital channel, uh, when you get such uh, fragmentation and complexity and dynamics. And I would characterize these as sort of marketer-centric issues. And you know, we've talked about this ad nauseum, of transparency issues, measurement, viewability, fraud, adverse context, the list goes on. And then there's consumer-centric uh, issues, primarily to ad avoidance uh, and privacy. And ultimately, you know, this is a question of trust, right? Uh, it, you know, do we trust the supply chain, the, 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 all the stuff in the middle, to uh, make sure that this is working and, and, and working properly. And look, of late, digital media has faced several challenges, right? There's enhanced scrutiny on big tech from issues ranging from platform abuse, brand safety, privacy, antitrust. You can almost hear the voices. Anybody in here a little worried about how Facebook uses your data? Freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. I think Mark Zuckerberg is the most dangerous person in the world. So, so we have an environment where everyone from uh, outspoken university professors to presidential candidates, former, uh, to comedians are talking out about the ills of big tech. Um, it, this used to be the purview of folks either in the industry or people buying services from the industry. Now it is in the popular zeitgeist to hit up on big tech and the, and the manifestations of those are, are, are twofold. One, obviously privacy regulation, starting in Europe, 
and now has moved to the U.S. with uh, CCPA and of course uh, other states are considering additional legislation and of course antitrust and antitrust you know we got 48 state AGs investigating Google and Facebook and and as well as the the DOJ um, so so th there's a lot of changes taking place perhaps the biggest though is happening from the industry itself and that is data restrictions everyone from browsers to uh, the sort of plumbing of, of ad tech in, in terms of double click and, and, and Google are effectively withholding uh, uh, data, putting up restrictions on data under the name, under the guise of privacy, but they have implications that are, that are broader than that. And, and most notably, you know, double click IDs going away, Chrome's announcement of cookie deprecation scheduled for uh, two years from now, all of which have manifestations on this world that we will, uh, that we will get to. And so uh, with that, uh, I want to see if I can turn this over to Brian Anderson, if he can unmute himself and talk through uh, the next uh, handful of slides. And if that doesn't work, I'll just keep going and pretend I'm as smart as Brian Anderson. I'm a pretty good actor, so that might that might work. Brian, you're under all right. Very good. So for those of you that that uh, joined a little late and didn't hear, I did. You know, kind of the law of the demo is Murphy's law always comes into play. I guess it's the same with webinars. My internet home internet failed five minutes before this, so I am dialed in. I cannot see the slides, so I'm assuming that Terry, you're just going to click through and just yes, stop me if you uh, oh, need me to. Oh, you can't see the slides. Oh, wow. I uh, cannot yeah. see the slides. I have I have our deck, or at least a lot of version of our deck. Um, so anyway, the you know the inherent ad value proposition had always been you know free content or services for people's attention. You know that's been the, the trade-off, and really over the last ten years, that's changed to attention and data. Um, and, you know, the data really being used for um, targeted advertising. Um, and really the, the enablers um, for this has been the browsers. And what's been interesting to watch over the years is the change. So you had Brave as the original browser being the one that had explicit consent, meaning a consumer had to essentially turn on targeting. Um, otherwise, it was turned off, where all the other browsers had implicit consent or targeting turned on by default. Um, over the years, um, really over the last you know, recent years, you've seen that change where all the main browsers, except for Chrome, have moved to that explicit consent or, or targeting turned off um, paradigm, with, with Google Chrome being the last remaining company um, that enables targeting turned on by default, by default. And that's important because people rarely change the default settings. And with Google Chrome having 60, 70% market share, you know, so the majority of the open web was still targetable. Um, but what did we um, have, you know, as a change recently um, was obviously, there we go. I heard the, I heard the noise, so I know where we are. Um, so Google Chrome, you know, is killing the cookie. And so what did, you know, this is now old news, but obviously in, in mid-January, they announced that they are going to make third-party cookies obsolete. So in two years, they're going to phase out support for the third-party cookie. And instead of that, 
they will have the Chrome Privacy Sandbox, which they say will enable a privacy-preserving ad-supported web. So, you know, the, it was interesting to watch the industry where, you know, many people have been talking about the death of the cookie for years, but it seemed like all of a sudden, oh my God, it's, it's now happening. Um, and you saw a ton of, of uh, press, you know, really for weeks, and you're still seeing articles um, even now um, about this. And it's a big deal because, you know, fundamentally the architecture of the web that's powered targeting and measurement will fundamentally change and one-to-one -one targeting and open web will go away as we know it. Um, and so a big uh, unknown right now is, is what will really replace it. You know, the privacy sandbox um, is what, you know, Google has, has conveyed, you know, will be, you know, the secure environment for personalization that also protects user privacy. And in a series of GitHub blogs, you know, they've talked about What's, uh, what is going to be some of the functionality as part of this privacy sandbox? Number one, as they said, is conversion measurement. They recognize you, you cannot completely break um, measurement you know, with this change. And supposedly that's something that's supposed to be defined by the end of this year. I assume we'll have working code by then. Um, other um, you know, functions that they have written about, one is called the Federated Learning of Cohorts or FLOCs which is segment-based targeting based on um, inferred interest from browsing behavior. But this is not on a one-to-one -one basis. People are put into segments, you know, for these uh, cohorts um, and other things like, you know, um, items to combat fraud or limiting uh, PII collection. But the reality is all this is a work in progress. You know, this is being defined um, as we speak. Uh, what we do know is you know, the privacy sandbox will continue to extend, you know, Google's walls where we've seen over time, you know, they stopped passing the, you know, Google uh, double click ID. More recently, they stopped passing iOS app install data to mobile attribution providers. And now, you know, third party cookies going away. So that, that data that's used to reside, you know, in the open web for the, the entire ecosystem is now all contained or will be contained within Google's walls. Um, so, you know, what will be the market impact? Um, you know, there are some people with, uh, that are very opinionated. Um, so obviously, Ari at Beeswax, you know, wrote, I think the day after the announcement, you know, let's start with a Deadpool. They talked about view through attribution, third-party data, DMPs, multi-touch attribution, all dead. And, you know, closer to home, uh, you know, here's, uh, here's Terry's take. All right. Again, I could hear that, so I know where we are. Um, but anyway, you know, let's kind of like go away from the chicken littles of the world and the sky is falling and talk a little bit more about, you know, kind of the views on on uh, the market impact. So, so starting with the consumers, um, yes, privacy will, you know, it, it will be a more private environment. That's the whole purpose of this. Um, so consumers will benefit um, from that if they're concerned about uh, uh, consumer privacy. 
the the unknown is you know what's going to happen to ad supported content you know are you going to see a bunch of publishers that people really enjoy that are that are ad supported are they going to go away um, that's the big unknown um, at this time and along those lines let's look at publishers so first of all the premium publishers you know, wall street journal new york times news corp the atlantic washington post etc these companies have been investing a lot in their systems like paywalls and subscription services and just capturing first party data in general. You know, these companies actually are going to do just fine you know, because of that. And they actually may be even strengthened because of that. Um, the area we're concerned about is you know, long tail publishers or even mid tail publishers. And Google's own study um, showed that publisher ad revenues dropped 52% when ads are not targeted. And it hasn't been just Google study. There's been multiple studies that, you know, there was one outlier layer that said 4% impact, but all the other ones we've seen were between like 50 and 65% de decrease in, in prices or revenues for publishers. So it could be extreme. So marketers, um, first of all, data rich marketers, you know, the, like the D2C companies, the Warby Parkers and Harry's of the world, they were born um with a first party data mindset um so you know they should be just fine because that's been their advantage um it's gonna be interesting to watch the the large retailers especially the ones that have launched um retail media um, efforts so kroger's and target with roundel and walmart you know they have a tremendous amount of first party data and you could argue that they will be strengthened by this because of the scarcity of first party data. So they, they could benefit you know, from this uh, dynamic. Uh, the marketers that are data poor, you know, auto, CPG, um, uh, others, you know, it's gonna, gonna be harder if you can't you know, target those individuals that are saying you know, in-market auto um, kind of folks. Um, again, it really comes back to the privacy sandbox. Will Flocks enable that, et cetera? Um, agencies, the, the general view is they will become more relevant in times of change. You know, companies lean on experts and agencies are experts in advertising, so they should actually become more relevant. Um, also, one of the, the uh, consequences of this is there's obviously been a lot of focus and investment in data and targeting over the last decade and not as much on the creative side. So we could actually see creative becoming more important, both creative technologies, um, as well as folks like agencies that are good at creative. So overall, we do think this will likely benefit the agencies. Um, ad tech vendors, again, this is one where, you know, I'm not gonna list you know, a bunch that I say are dead. It really depends on privacy sandbox standards and where those end up and how that will ultimately affect people. Um, mobile app advertising, we put in here as a question mark, they will not be affected by this um, because they don't rely on cookies, they don't you know, rely on browsers. Um, however, um, as noted here, there's a lot of discussion, will mobile advertising IDs go the way of the cookie? If so, then obviously they, they will be. Um, and finally, you know, the companies that you can think of as Kind of old school, you know, more desktop centric, web centric, you know, that really rely on cookies for advertising or measurement. Those will obviously be impacted. But again, we just don't know by how much based on the privacy sandbox.
who will benefit? Surprise, surprise, Wall Gardens. You know, they have a tremendous first party data advantage currently, and that will likely strengthen um, in, in a couple years. So as far as what should you do, one is get involved. Um, Google has said, we want you involved to define this kind of next era of the web. And one thing you have to remember is the DOJ is investigating all of the big platform companies for anti-competitive monopolistic activities. So Google is to their advantage to have a healthy environment. So they do want people's input in order to have the best, um, you know, uh, kind of replacement. Um, and also they, they have to do that because of this. Um, you know, you could argue that, oh, well, they're going to restrict third party cookies because it's their to their advantage from a, um, you know, competitive perspective. I actually don't believe that. I believe they're doing it because of the privacy dynamics and they were kind of forced into it by all the, the changes made by Apple's and others. But um, they did make that change or will make that change. So they do want people's input. The second that's more in your control, whether you're a marketer, a publisher, whoever you are, is invest in first party data solutions and strategies. Um, and we'll come back to that uh, in a minute. Over to you, Terry. All right. So, um, you know, one of the aspects about all of these sort of marketer centric or B2B uh, issues that challenge the uh, veracity of the of the sub digital supply chain are these notions of you know transparency measurement viewability fraud we've heard a lot about those as we mentioned and one of the things uh, one of the trends that we take uh, uh, great comfort in um, is has been the sort of migration uh, away from proxies uh, along the performance curve away from proxies and towards uh, business outcomes. Um, you know, it used to be, and still the majority of media is sold on an impression basis. Google, obviously, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, made a big um, impression uh, by starting to charge on clicks. And we've now seen the evolution to uh, uh, actions, where actions are really uh, defined as uh, new customers or, or customer proxies uh, towards uh, business outcomes. And there are three benefits to this migration along the performance curve. One is it mitigates the supply chain issues. So if you are not paying on an impression, who cares about fraud? Who cares about viewability? Uh, it, last time I checked, right, Russian bots don't actually purchase goods and services. So if you're not paying on the impression and only on the you know, qualified business outcome, then all of those issues are, are, are obviated. They become moot. Second uh, uh, point here is that this performance requires the linkages, right? It requires attribution in order to uh, demonstrate that um, you've achieved the business outcome from the spend, uh, from a particular you know, form of, of spend. Um, and that, of course, attribution requires identity. So you'd like we, as we started, it turns out identity is the kernel or the keystone, if you will, to this you know, whole data-driven uh, marketing world. And the third interesting aspect of this is that for the intermediary companies, and this should uh, come as a comfort to, uh, to ad tech, martech uh, folks, is that it, 
de facto increases the operating leverage of your business. What do I mean by that? Uh, I mean that um, you're essentially migrating, uh, changing the nature of spend from a discretionary expense to a uh, cost of goods sold effectively um, by becoming a, a key driver of, of their business. So take examples of companies, let's say in gaming or in digital apps. The intermediaries for digital app marketers, companies like uh, Applovin, companies like Bungle, companies like Facebook, I just named three of the biggest ones, have, uh, you know, are, 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 are reaping the benefits of this because let's think about it, right? They negotiate a bounty for every new qualified customer. Uh, and no, they're not just doing it on the app install. The, there is a requirement that the not only does the consumer have to install it, they have to utilize the service within the first month. Otherwise, it doesn't count. So, you know, they've actually gone fairly sophisticated in terms of what qualifies as a business outcome. So you set the bounty for all new uh, customers. And then once you've set the bounty, the marketer knows the lifetime value uh, of that customer. And so there is no off button on the marketing spend. The campaign never ends. It's, you know, AppLovin, please get me all new gaming uh, uh, customers to the nth degree. Like in other words, there's no cap on the spend and which is why you, those kinds of companies, it's what, it's what drove the growth of Facebook quite frankly, I know, I know, I know, you know, Carol Neverson talks a lot about brand and storytelling and all that kind of good stuff. And that plays well at conferences. But the reality is that is a company that was built on the backs of direct response marketers um, that are, are, are paying uh, increasingly on a, on a, on a CPA or an eCPA uh, basis. And what happens is you, you, you just have this beautiful thing where, um, your your customers are never going to turn it off if it's working and it becomes a, a function of math as long as the customer acquisition cost is set appropriately to the lifetime value of the customers they will continue to spend and that means you know your business just keeps going up and up and up now as mentioned you need the linkage you need identity and attribution in order for this to work now think about what um what brian mentioned earlier which is you know, effectively one-to-one -one targeting, you know, is gone under the guise and context of, you know, cookie deprecation. Well, that would effectively break this chain and allow it to only exist for the folks that have that deterministic uh, identity and don't need uh, some kind of currency for identity for the open web. In other words, that would benefit the wall gardens because they would be the only ones who could complete uh, that performance curve uh, to get to business uh, outcomes. So that's the concern, which is why we need some other form of currency, whether it's maids or fine, uh, death to the cookie, long live, I don't know, the cracker. Let's, you know, let's, I don't care what the currency is, but let's figure it out and we need to utilize it. And again, we're right back to where we started, data-driven mar marketing, right? which is optimizing the customer experience by sending the right message at the right time to the right person means you've got to have that addressability. You've got to have that data ingestion. You got to have the tools to be able to optimize, activate, measure, and attribute so you can plan all of which is centered on this notion of a single currency of identity.
So um, that's, that's the absolute uh, bedrock of uh, making all of this work. And look, we, we've, um, for, you know, for years, for the last 20 years, right, we've had what is effectively last touch attribution, right, which, which has tremendously benefited people with large platforms like uh, Facebook and, and Google and Critio and, and others who are able to say, yeah, sure, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty uh, obvious and easy thing to say, well, they were, they were on my site and then they did this. So obviously uh, I was the last thing and therefore I should get credit. Well, you know, that is becoming, I think people are taking a more sophisticated approach to that. We've heard a lot in the last five years about multi-touch attribution. Um, you know, companies like MarketShare uh, that we sold years ago to, to Newstar, which is a construct that looks at all aspects of what the consumer touched and what data was collected from the consumer throughout their entire path uh, and journey, and then try to weight which ones sort of mattered. In fact, that's the third incarnation of this, which is this notion of incrementality. So uh, this is the notion that not only do you look at everything, you don't weight everything equally, you look specifically at which aspects and touch points along the consumer journey, in fact, mattered uh, the most towards the, ultimately uh, the conversion. Uh, so I think that's the migration we're going as we get more sophisticated about attribution, all of which, however, requires that we have identity in order to make uh, all of this work. Brian? Great. So coming back to the, the point I made earlier about um, one of the things in your control is investing in, in first-party data and first-party data solutions. Um, you know, there's been obviously a lot of focus around, you know, the optimizing the customer experience, right message, right time, the right person. And the way we view that is there's really three key building blocks for that. There's really data, identity, and AI. Um, this is a graphic we actually started using for another purpose a while ago when, um, you know, we were noting that the delivery channels were starting to be commoditized, like, you know, SendGrid with email, Twilio with SMS, et cetera. Um, but it works well for this paradigm as well, where, you know, at the end of the day, the data plus orchestration or data plus AI is really about the right message at the right time. But in order to get to the right person, you need that, you know, strong identity layer. And the CDP category that's obviously exploded over the last few years, you know, we view as really encompassing the data layer and orchestration. And actually some CDPs just focus on the data layer. Um, we, we generally view that identity is outside of this. Um, you know, CDP CEOs will argue, well, we manage identity data, it's critically important, and we agree with that. However, there's a whole identity ecosystem that really helps you augment your identity. So, you know, you may be capturing an, a bunch of identity information from your first party systems, but you need to use other systems, you know, like LiveRamp to connect, say, emails with, with cookies or TapAd to build out your device graphs that are associated with an individual. So we view that the identity ecosystem is actually complementary to CDPs, since CDPs need that identity information in order to kind of fill out the user profiles. Um, 
on the CDP space, there has been a lot of funding. It still remains the, the hottest category of MarTech by far. Um, almost a billion dollars invested in the category since 2017. Most recently, you saw $45 million uh, investment in, in, in particle. Um, but with that, there is a lot of confusion around CDPs. What are they? And we get a lot of comments about how can this company and that company be in the same category? It makes no sense. They're not, they're not even similar. And we agree. One of the areas of confusion is I, I think um, that there's a lot of companies being called CDPs. You know, these are the logos that, are, that represent the companies that are listed on the CDP Institute site. And, you know, we focus on the space and I look across here and there's a whole bunch. I have no idea who they are. A lot of them are international, but there are a lot of them that we do know really well that we look at and we say, wow, that is not a CDP. Why is that on the list? So, you know, if a, if a company, whether you're a marketer looking to license a CDP or a buyer looking to buy a CDP and you look at this list, you know, where do you start? Um, so we have started really in the last year or so using this graphic and it's not, it's not that innovative. I mean, basically it's, you know, you take the Gartner uh, left to right flow chart of kind of data ingestion to creating user profile to, you know, from that creating segments, analytics, et cetera, all the way through, um, you know, decisioning um, and pushing out those signals to activation systems, just flipping that um, on its side into a architecture diagram. For whatever reason, um, it makes it easier to have conversations with uh, both the companies in the category, you know, or buyers or marketers looking at the space. So if you look at, you know, companies and kind of where they match up, generally there are companies that, you know, have strengths in different areas within these capabilities of the CDP stack. As, a, as an example, you know, Segment that, uh, you know, about a year ago raised $175 million at $1.5 billion, so obviously a very successful company. You know, what are they? They're really a data connector. You know, they're really good at it. They have a whole bunch of integrations with a lot of systems and they move data back and forth from those systems. They do have some new offerings that kind of move them up the stack, but they're really known as the data connector. On the other end of the spectrum, if you look at the kind of the top of the chart, you have companies like Evergage that we just uh, represented in their acquisition by Salesforce, where um, Evergage, you know, since their founding principle, you know, has created con uh, profiles on each and every consumer and those profiles are what drives the decisioning for their personalization applications. Um, and so they definitely are a CDP with a personalization platform. But as far as the companies that are licensing them, um, they're looking at them as you know, this is the best personalization platform on the market. You know, it's the number one rated platform by Gartner and, you know, great momentum, et cetera. And so they're generally not being bought as just a CDP. They're generally being bought as a personalization platform. You know, a company like Bluecore, they do not call themselves a CDP. We put them in here as an example where they they also create profiles on each and every consumer. And based on those profiles, current browsing behavior, et cetera, they send triggered emails and more recently also send blast emails, but each and every person has a personalized message within that blast email. So they have 
capabilities within this diagram, but they are being licensed by their their clients uh, because of their best in class, you know, triggered you know email capability, et cetera. Um, and then you have other companies that you know in the orange box that when you ask them why do you win, you know RFPs, they point to really the kind of segmentation or more the decisioning orchestration. Um, and so you have companies that that are really strong in that kind of ML um, decisioning. So as far as the CDP category, you know, yes, it's confusing when you start to look at it from afar. But once you start diving into, you know, what are you trying to solve um, as a marketer or as a as a you know, strategic buyer, you start narrowly you start narrowing the, uh, the down to the companies that really match up with what you're trying to get at. Um, all right, last slide. So there has been, you know, a lot of acquisitions in and around identity and consumer data. It really varies, you know, across, you know, enterprise software companies, you know, marketing companies, telcos, you know, even brands, you know, with McDonald's buying dynamic yield. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's, there's lots of activity. And if you if we boil it down, and if people ask us, which they do, hey, what do you view as some of the hottest areas across you know, what you cover? Um, our our typical response now is really it's it's data with C CDPs being number one, it's identity, and the third that Terry actually uh, uh, touched on earlier, it's the the mobile app advertising ecosystem. You have a number of really large successful players that are successfully competing against Google and Facebook. Um, and, and growing great businesses. Um, there are those, and then also one of the areas that Terry uh, touched on um, last week, which is the whole conversion TV space and a lot of dynamics around data, targeting, measurement, et cetera, around conversion TV. Um, anyway, yeah, over to you, Terry. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, a tremendous amount of activity. In fact, you know, as you can see, we've done one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight deals in this category and we remain active in it. So uh, I think the um, Brian was sort of being, being, um, being appropriately, you know, uh, uh, professional by saying we see a lot of activity here. When we say we see a lot of activity here, we see a lot of activity here. So you can expect this will, this will go up already, by the way, um, $6 billion in total deal value just represented on this page and uh, as I mentioned there's uh, there's there's a lot more of a there there so you could uh, I think expect uh, more, more to take place so <clears throat> that's the sort of the prepared sort of um, slides we're um, just as a reminder right next week next Wednesday at 2 p.m. is comedy and business uh, in this uh, work from home webinar series and tomorrow if you're interested you know Bill and I have known each other for 15 years are going to be, you know, quaffing uh, rosé in that sort of can mindset. Uh, insights and imbibe tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern. And now uh, we're going to go to uh, Q and A. Uh, apologies again for a little bit of a late start, but um, I've been looking through the um, myriad of questions that have come in. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. And apologies if we won't uh, be able to get to your specific question. But Brian, I'm going to. I'm going to start uh, with um, with my good friend Steve Cattleman's uh, question, which is probably kind of like the most pressing question on what uh, you know 
uh, March the 25th, which is, that's all well and good. How does what you just said get affected by uh, COVID-19? I mean, in terms of identity, in terms of the efficacy of these data tools, what's the, what's the, implement, what's the implication of the crisis we're going through? Um, the question of the day. <laughs> well, I'm an eternal optimist. So, you know, I do think that, uh, well, first of all, on a macro level, it's, you know, we'll get through it and we'll bounce back. So um, I think the good news is you look across, um, you know, well, I'm answering this in the, the Luma Partners M&A context. So I'll answer that way first, but then we'll answer it more generally is, um, you know, a lot of, of the big companies that have really stable businesses. Think of SaaS software. I mean, sure, their bookings will be impacted, but their revenues actually you know, won't be um, as far as you won't see immediate declines, et cetera. So they have really strong, durable businesses, large cash balances, et cetera. They actually are looking at this as a potential buying environment. Um, you know, if it could, you know, become a, a longer term, you know, downturn. Um, so I think, you know, deal activity will happen one way or the other. As far as, um, you know, data, identity, et cetera, again, I think just the, the long view is, um, you know, the, you've seen a movement over the last decade to data-driven advertising and data-driven marketing in general. Um, what's critical as part of that is, you know, managing that, that data and acting on that data and, and as part of that uh, data being strong identity solutions. I don't see that trend going backwards. Um, and uh, so I think uh, in general, sure, there may be some people hitting the pause button, um, but, uh, uh, you know, but overall, I don't think the long-term trends are going to change. So, so, so when, when we do get back, so business as usual, when we, when we, when we do get back, what, 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 uh, uh, Steve goes on to say, what, what about specific players? And by that, I mean agencies. And by that, I mean digital divisions of agencies. And by that, I mean digital divisions of agencies that start with the letter O and end with NECOM. I'll put that one to you. Yeah, I know. Well, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you're going to do just, uh, just fine, as so long as you can keep up the scotch drinking. Um, okay, great question here from uh, Charles Bookwalter. Uh, with respect to uh, consumer panels. I mean, you know, we were in a world of, um, of you know, audience-based media buying, very sort of census orientation, right? I mean, for a long time there, we were saying, ah, oh, panels, that's a, that's a way of the past. And, uh, you know, how, how ridiculous. Will they make a comeback in a world that, uh, where you've got privacy restrictions and where you start to really think about other things uh, that matter a lot, which is like creativity and context. Yeah, interesting question. I think, um, you know, panels, panels can make a lot of sense. I mean, for instance, let's look at, you know, Place that was acquired by Snap first and then spun out of Snap and acquired by Foursquare. You know, they used a panel-based measurement um, capability of opt-in uh, consumers, and you know, but it's millions of people, in order to drive their, you know, location-based uh, attribution. Um, so that's an example of, of a panel, but it's very different than the old kind of Nielsen panels of the past, which were much more limited. 
So I think, you know, panels could absolutely um, be something that, you know, makes even more of a, of a comeback. But I would imagine you're using, you know, digital capabilities to greatly expand um, those panels. Yep. Um, what's your perspective on, uh, <clears throat> on CMPs? It, it's, it's, a t it's an area we didn't specifically address. It obviously is an important tool uh, that basically converts the implicit consent to explicit consent. Um, and, and of course, the, the, there isn't even, there's a whole category of what's being called privacy tech uh, companies. But what, what's your perspective on the opportunity for uh, CMPs? Thank you, uh, Lisa Gretto. Uh, we are really bullish on CMPs because especially in this, what we just went through, if you have data that is not consented data, that data is worthless. So, um, you know, you need, to, you need to absolutely make sure that, that you have the, you know, the consent attached to the, the data. So CMPs obviously allow that. So we think kind of, you know, Consent plus data is a is a critical uh, combination of, of capabilities. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, Jason Burke asks um, from Andrew Sussman um, the absence of trust that we that we mentioned. Do do we see any new ad tech specifically focused on creating trust? Uh, I tell you what. It, I'm not sure uh, I could point to specific technologies. I can certainly point to um efforts uh around some of these uh, data co-ops uh, that have been announced uh i know uh you know media math is and 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 um live ramp and others have, have announced source as a sort of um solution set that uh brings greater quality protection to the supply chain i know that the ana uh, uh have announced their own sort of version of what a, um, I forget the name of it, but uh, you know, an enhanced and improved sort of supply chain. So there's, there's certainly efforts and, and data sharing and, and co-op like structures. I can't think specifically of, of <clears throat> specific technologies uh, that address the, uh, the trust world, unless, unless you can, Brian. Yeah, I mean, well, one, I think that, you know, what we already talked about consent management platforms, that's, that's one as a category. And some of the players, some of the bigger players like, um, you know, uh, OneTrust and TrustArc, et cetera. I mean, they, they're all about privacy, security, et cetera. Um, there's other companies uh, like Big ID that I don't remember the size of it, but they just raised a really big round that's really focused on privacy and protecting data, et cetera. So, um, I do think that kind of privacy technology um, isn't very well defined right now, but I do think that is absolutely going to be a growing area. Yep. Um, there's a question that's come in around CTV uh, and as to whether uh, identity and personal data becomes a currency, like in a in an AVOD or replacement for SVOD kind of scenario. And I, I will say this. Let's let's just back up a, a, a second. Um, yeah, by the way, to answer that specific question, I'm, I'm not bullish on this notion of data as a currency. Just, uh, I, I think it'll be good old, uh, you know, Benjamins, uh, it'll be cash uh, um, that, that uh, I think these publishers are, are going to be looking for. Uh, what they do is they will, uh, instead of, you know, a, a substitute for being paid, uh, they do offer, you know, greater uh, relevance, um, witness the 
recommendation tools of a Netflix, if you will, um, that's, uh, that's once you're used to that, you really want uh, to have that more often. I would, um, uh, and, and, and by the way, you know, when you buy a new uh, TV, whether it's a Samsung or a Vizio, you'll notice that on the setup, there is a consent as to data collection. Um, and uh, so far, they're running at about 70, 75% opt-in for smart TV uh, data, uh, data collection um uh on on smart tv so it's, it's it feels like so far consumers are seeing at least the advantage of that i will say that in the ctv sector remember ctv the c in ctv is usually reserved for connected right connected tv meaning ott streaming uh we change that uh we don't like connected tv we prefer the c to refer to convergent so it's in our world uh, CTV means convergent TV uh, because it's and the reason why it's convergent is because you really have to holistically look at all the four channels of linear addressable linear OTT and digital and you know the consumer doesn't really discriminate between how they're getting their quote-unquote TV uh, uh, through which channel uh, through which device uh, they don't care, even though we know that uh, across those four sub-channels of CTV, CTV meaning convergent TV, that there are different workflow uh, protocols, different identity parameters. I mean, it these are truly four different distinct channels, and yet the consumer doesn't differentiate. The marketer as well takes a holistic view on it, right? If they, if you're, if you're trying to manage a campaign for a Ford F-150, you need to manage uh, simple things like reach and frequency across all of those four sub-channels of CTV. Otherwise, the person uh, on the other end, the consumer, could be all out of whack because you can't coordinate uh, between the left hand and the right hand across the four uh, sub-channels of CTV. Um, Let's see, question came in, are brands buying an identity solutions of their own? Look, I mean, clearly McDonald's bought a personalization uh, capability. I'm gonna go ahead and suggest that, you know, that's gonna be a rarity. You're not, you're not gonna see, you know, a long tail of brands buy their own uh, uh, technology uh, platforms. And I think ultimately that will be an intermediaries uh, uh, game because it'll, they'll keep the uh, quality of the technology up. Well, I'm looking at some other questions, Brian, perhaps um, one thing that struck me when you showed that CDP slide with all the logos and mentioned there was, you know, $850 million that was in, uh, uh, invested in the category just in the last couple of years, it occurred to me that that's a lot of venture capital money backing a lot of different, you know, startups in this space. How in the world does an independent startup compete with these, you know, massive marketing clouds uh, that bring, you know, heft and, and the ability to cross sell and, and, and a built in sort of, you know, scale advantage uh, relative to these independents? Yeah, great question. We, we get a lot um, is <clears throat> so obviously, you know, Adobe, Oracle, Salesforce have all 
announced or released, you know, their CDPs. And I have to imagine they'll actually, you know, all do fairly well, you know, selling to their, you know, current customer base, et cetera. However, they will, they will always kind of naturally give preference to their own systems where, you know, other CDPs um, by their nature, you know, they are trying to integrate with every third party system out there as far as getting the right data in from commerce data, web data, call center data, whatever it is into their system so they can create that single view of the customer and then be able to push out the execution signals back into all the other execution uh, systems. What's really interesting is, is um, Scott Brinker, you know, Chief Martech, publishes what he calls the stackies, where uh, big marketers will publish all of the systems they work with, and there's usually many, many dozens of systems that they license. And there always is Salesforce, there's always Oracle, there's always Adobe as part of that, and then also dozens of other systems as well. And because of that, the whole premise of a CDP is to be able to ingest data from all those systems, create a single view of the customer uh, decision on that, and then push it back out into those systems. You know, independent parties actually most likely will have more focus on all those other third-party systems. That's why I actually still remain bullish on the independent players in the category. Got it. Got it. Bullish on independence. We like that. Um, and by the way, folks, uh, because we started a little bit late, we'll, we'll just keep going for another, another 10 minutes uh, and then we'll uh, wrap things up. Appreciate you uh, sticking with us. Brian Barnum asks a, a rather elaborate question. I'll, I'll see if I can't just summarize it. He, he's really getting to this notion of, you know, um, trying to evaluate the business efficacy of these identity management companies that, that use a probabilistic or sort of third-party um, um, approach to, to, to data. Um, and one of the things, let me, let me start off at a, at a high level, and then Brian, you can, you can chime in. You know, look, it's, it's not like um, everything goes uh, to zero, you know, overnight, this notion of, you know, cookie deprecation and the um, application of third-party data. Yes, privacy uh, constraints and legislation will accelerate what we have been describing for like six or seven years now as a natural progression towards first party data. We, we, we certainly have seen the efficacy of that uh, manifest itself with the, with the wall of gardens. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, uh, uh, Facebook will do $75 billion in revenue this year is because it works. They have a closed loop system where they know it, with uh, definition, the identity of the person and they got ample media to be able to uh, uh, provide intermediated solutions. So yeah, uh, first party is better than third party. In fact, the line I like to use is first party data is to third party data as the after party is to the party. Uh, higher quality and more exclusive and better conversion. Dun -dun -dun. Hey Terry, I, I'd gotten kicked off, but I am back. I'm here through Thursday, try the veal. Okay, so you're back, good. Um, I, was just, I was just talking about third party data. Will we still see probabilistic approaches, especially when you're trying to build out large graphs and, and across devices? Absolutely. Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, you'll never have enough, you know, um, deterministic um, information and probabilistic is something that can, can fill in information 
as one example, actually, you were talking about CTV earlier. What's real interesting to, to, to watch is, you know, some of the, you know, cross-device uh, companies, you know, like a tap ad, you know, their, their, their uh, um, ID graph includes, yes, you know, a person on their various devices, but that's matched to households. Within the household, there is the TV. And so you can have different people matched to um, the TVs within the household. Um, and with CTV uh, and the growing importance of CTV and the focus on, you know, a consistent approach of addressing, um, you know, messaging, whether that be advertising, whatever it is, to consumers, you know, it, it still, in our view, has to be a mix of deterministic and probabilistic capabilities together. There you go, folks. It's an and, not an or. Um, here's a question uh, from uh, Karthik Shankar from, from Group M. Larger question remains unanswered is the return on investment for marketers of their investments in CDPs. Have we seen it yet? Or is this something that's on the come? That's a great question. Um, I think it's still TBD, um, frankly, where you know, a lot of the growth of CDPs, meaning marketers adopting CDPs, has been very recent. Um, I think the good news is when I talk to the CEOs of the CDPs, of, you know, the leading CDPs, they all have really high retention rates. Generally, their net retention is, is you know, in the, you know, over 100%. So they're actually getting the renewals and upselling. So, um that's really the, the proof we're seeing now is are customers renewing and are they increasing their investment? And we also have seen a number of cases where, especially like large multinational companies will say, okay, I'm going to start in Latin America and test it out. And if it works, we're going to roll it out worldwide. And we are seeing, you know, those, uh, you know, kind of pilots prove it out and being rolled out worldwide. So, uh, still remain bullish, um, but again, it's an early category, so I think we'll have to see, does that continue? Yeah, I, you know, I, I agree. I think this notion of the, it's not the contract, right? Because you could have a great salesperson, so don't talk to me about your big seven-digit, you know, seven-figure contract. It's the contract renewal that pretty much tells me everything I need to know about what your customers think of your software. Um, here's a great question uh, from uh, Pepe uh, A. Hey, Joe. Hey, Joe. Um, how do you see traditional brands, not direct-to-consumer, uh, shifting towards performance advertising, and will this be accelerated by COVID-19? You know, I had this conversation earlier uh, today, uh, and, and I really do like to look at the implications of D2C, the whole phenomena around direct-to-consumer, uh, in terms of their application to, to general marketers you know they do a bunch of things of course you know in the front end like like design and you know better treatment of customers and and things like that but it's really the back end stuff in terms of the media buying the performance orientation and yes i think pepe i think i think that will have a big impact for traditional brands migrating towards performance advertising it won't be exactly the same as the some of the you know dr uh, centric folks but yes i think in general we will see more and more and actually we're seeing it from the publishers so you know linda yaccarino talking about business what did she talk about in the last year in terms of an nbc 
solution, business outcomes. So when you get um, publishers supporting it, when you get, of course, the marketers are going to want that because performance is better. But when you get publishers going along, when you get agencies pushing this, I'm a big believer in incentives. You want to see whether something's going to take off. Look at the incentives. Remember when, when um, programmatic is, you know, we're now in sort of like the 10th year of really scaled programmatic ever since, you know, Google bought uh, Invite Media and started scaling. That was almost 10 years ago uh, today. And we've seen a tremendous growth in that market now, you know, $70 billion, 85% of all digital is, is done, bought through programmatic. Why did that grow so fast and so virulently? It grew because sure, you gotta have the technology, uh, we put the technology in the right hands, that is to say in the hands of large uh, companies that can bring scale like Google. But the third one was incentives. It grew because agencies wanted it to grow. And so they are really the gatekeepers and, and the ones that can uh, make or break different technologies. In the case of programmatic, agencies, which were under the gun for margin, uh, uh, you know, found, it's like they got backed into a corner and they looked down and there was a loaded AK-47. They're like, yeah, look at this. I'm in the game again. So they set up, you know, agency trading desks and basically they found a way to uh, charge uh, more margin. They found a margin opportunity in uh, promoting the growth of programmatic. And that uh, I believe was a major component of it. I believe it's also why we will see broad scale adoption of CTV in the TV world because complexity is your friend. If you're an intermediary, right? Complexity equals margin. Uh, um, agencies will make more money uh, the more we move towards data-driven uh, uh, marketing spend uh, and therefore, you know, higher uh, salaries for people like Steve Cattleman, which will give him a bigger uh, drinking budget, which will accrue to my benefit as well. So you see everyone wins. Um, okay. Actually, one other one other interesting example is the Roundel business owned by Target. Um, they rolled out a product last year that was a measurement product where it was based on TV um, advertising and how much um, actual sales they were seeing in the Target stores. So you know, instead of just relying on like brand list studies, you know, it's actually seeing increased sales. So things like that are um, are uh, increasing as well. I see, uh, indeed, indeed. I see a lot of people pimping their companies to me saying, hey, mention me, mention me. Um, that's not really the purpose of this. We love you all, we love you all. Um, here's an interesting question uh, from uh, Eugene Martin. Uh, do you know of any identity-less incrementality measurement solutions? What's the, sorry, the question was what? It's, it's uh, do you know of any incrementality measurement solutions that, that don't involve identity? That don't involve identity, huh? I guess in theory, if you had a way to cache, well, I mean, it's gonna be, it, it has to be identity in some way. I mean, you have to have a temporary identity. It all depends on your definition of identity, I think would be the answer. But I mean, you have to know um, you have to know, uh, Steve Kettleman, by the way, is not wearing pants currently. So that's a PSA out there. I am so glad we didn't share video. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, uh, I think you would have to have at least some temporary, uh, identity to the, 
to sort of identify the session in order to do the uh, oopsie uh, to do the um, uh, to do the yeah. uh, interesting yeah interesting question. I think you'd have to have a broader discussion on that yeah. one. But yeah, yeah, good question. Yeah, that is a, it is a good question. All right, we have uh, one minute remaining. Let's see if I can find any uh, specific ones. Oh, uh, for all, yes, we will be posting a recording of this presentation on the Luma Partners um, YouTube channel, and we will send that out to all registrants uh, and participants of today's webinar. So you'll be able to, you know, you have trouble sleeping, uh, you know, uh, COVID-19 gotcha gotcha stressed out just just listen to this trust me uh, within three minutes you'll be fast asleep <laughs>